Welcome to the Emotional Balance Sheet, the go-to podcast for parents with multiple kids, especially those with twins, triplets, or more, who are navigating the maze of modern family life and personal finance. Whether you're overwhelmed by education or retirement planning, parenting dilemmas, career transitions, or trying to define your purpose and plan, we're here to guide you with empathy, encouragement, and expertise. Hosted by Paul Fenner, founder of Tama Capital, a certified financial planner and parent to four kids, including a set of triplets, our podcast is your ally in the quest for financial peace of mind, proving that money matters, but family comes first. Subscribe now and join our community of empowered parents at TamaCapital.com. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Tama may retain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. What does comprehensive financial planning even mean? At Tama Capital, it means a family office where lifestyle planning such as retirement, college, portfolio management, tax prep and planning, all are under one umbrella. But it goes beyond numbers. We focus as much on the emotional side of financial planning as we do on the financial side. We get you. We understand your challenges of building a family, business or career, and a healthy life. We are devoted to wealth planning for families like yours because we are you. Learn how our family can help your family by visiting TamaCapital.com. Alison Schreger is an economist and writer who has taken on this incredibly complex and, in my opinion, unique subject of risk in her work. I probably came across Alison's work seven or eight years ago. She has an amazing uh, Substack subscription uh, that she writes on. The one thing I love about Allison is that she has this flair for engaging in storytelling, especially in her book, An Economist Walks Into a Brothel, which we'll get into. But Allison really seeks hard to debunk commonly held myths around risk and challenging this mantra of no risk, no reward. She probes into the subtleties of risk management and emphasizes that while society often chooses to ignore the inherent trade-offs of pursuing greater risk, or greater rewards, I should say, acknowledging these risks is critical for successful investing, but as you will soon learn or hear, it's even more important in life itself. Please enjoy my conversation with Allison Schrager. Allison, Thank you so much for being on the show. I know you get inundated with requests like this often, so it's a, it's a real privilege to, to have a conversation with you. The reason why I've been following your work for so long and, and reading your book, An Economist Walks Into a Brothel, which we'll talk about, is how you talk about risk. And I know in my situation as being a financial advisor, I've really tried to redefine how I see risk and talk about risk with the families I work with. And so I think that's a really good place to for us to start, you know, this conversation is for you to talk about maybe some of the common misunderstandings around how define how you define risk and really how we measure it. 
Yeah. I mean, I'm glad you bring that up because that that's the book I'm working on now is like seven myths about risk. And, you know, it's not one of the myths I get into, but it's the, I think one I, I debated, which is, you know, you always hear, uh, you know, no risk, no reward, but for some reason, like we're in complete denial that that is true, like consistently. And I, I would, I almost would call that a, a risk that is not true because it seems a myth that it's not true because everyone seems we see, we, I don't know if it's just like human to deny that there are trade-offs. And if you are going for more, there's risk that comes with it. And that's just like a fact of life. And I mean, I think that was also, what I was trying to impart with economists walks into a brothel is that these trade-offs exist. There's ways to manage them, especially once you acknowledge they exist. But I mean, it's just a fact of life that, and, and it's true in any aspect of your life, not just markets. I think I, I love financial markets. And I love studying them because I think they provide a really sort of clean way to illustrate these larger truths because it's just like things being bought and sold all the time in such a high volume that sometimes these things become a little bit more clear. But I think sort of realizing, you know, and I think this is at the heart of like, if you think about it, every single financial scam, you know, which people are always very concerned about is someone's offering them a really high return and no risk. Like once someone offers you that, you know, it's a scam. It's really, it's really easy. Um, and uh, if someone is manages to de-risk your portfolio, that's going to come at some cost, be it, you know, premium, be it just, you know, giving up on some returns, you're hedging. So I think that's the like number one thing. Anyway, it sounds so obvious and it's actually like a cliche to say no, there's no reward, but it seems to be something that we, even like, is it really like financial professionals? I mean, think of all these sort of financial professionals who got involved with Madoff you know, all should have known better. And I think it's just so tempting to um, think that you can get more for less or get a high return for no risk. My my good friend, uh, Brian Portnoy has said this, and I'm, I'm, I'm sure Morgan Housel said this as well, but you know, investing, there's always going to be a certain part of your portfolio that you're going to hate. Mm-hmm. Totally. And, and it's, it's doing it right. Yeah. If you're doing it right, there's always a portion of your portfolio that you're going to hate because like mm-hmm. when the market's ripping, like it, you know, it has been at least in, in the magnificent seven this year, um, you want to be all in on those, but then just literally like 14 months ago, you know, those stocks were in a 70% drawdown and no one mm-hmm. wanted to own them. So yeah. it's, it's very interesting. Um, and I didn't know that I knew you were working on a new book, which we'll get into. I didn't know what the title or what the the theme of it was. So this is, this is going to be apropos. Um, you know, when, when I talk about risk with the families that I work with, I think there's this, um, overwhelming idea that it's about markets. It's, you know, did I under or overperform the, the benchmark or what the, you know, S and P 500 did or whatever it is. And I've really tried to twist that definition and view largely based on the work that that you've done and and come back and say, no, well, that's important. The real risk is how is it impacting your overall financial plan, whether it's short term, medium term, long term? Mm-hmm. Like what's the risk of you really achieving or not achieving your plan? That's the risk that we should really be focused on and and measuring. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I've been thinking a lot about, I, I think of as like the original sin in financial planning, which is um, when we moved from defined benefit to a defined contribution world, 
um, we more, and I think I discussed this in the book, we more or less like we had financial strategies, which had grown up over the years for like people who had like significant family wealth. But like in terms of the average person, like the average person just wasn't in markets for most of time, most, you know, most of their history. Um, so when all of a sudden, like half of Americans own stock, we sort of took that same conventional wisdom for people who had significant family wealth to individuals, which, you know, they are saving and investing for very different reasons. They're not like looking to leave a bequest. They're not looking to just have this huge pile of money sitting there. They're actually saving and investing to fund their consumption throughout their lifestyle. And it's a very different objective, and that requires a completely different strategy and also a different way of measuring success with your portfolio, most importantly. But we're sort of applying not only the same strategy, but the same um, um, success metrics that you would do if you were managing a hedge fund. And it just, it's, it's, it, and I think it just really sets everyone up to fail and makes your communication with your clients so much harder than it needs to be. Because they're always going to judge you. Like if you're, is it being responsible? You're thinking about long-term, you're thinking about diversification, the Magnificent Seven. I mean, you know, we're completely different like 30 years ago, but you're thinking about people's wealth for decades. So if you were just like not thinking about risk, you would just invest in those seven stocks and go home. And they would be able to, all your clients could say to their like, you know, friend, hey, my guy is doing better than your guy because I'm making more money. But like, that's not your job. Your job is to provide, you know, meaningful income and wealth to these people for their lifetime. And like investing in seven stocks does not achieve that. I was just having this conversation um, with a form with a, another financial advisor colleague, Matt Reiner, and we were kind of sharing the same uh, struggle about how hard and, and difficult it is to get people over this idea or hurdle that your your financial plan is more than just your portfolio performance mm-hmm. and the ability to look at risk. And you know, risk is is all around us. It's a and and it goes back to I think being able to make you know healthy trade-offs, healthy decisions, looking at opportunity costs. Because mm-hmm. again, there's it, again, as we said before, if we're doing it right, there's always going to be a portion of your portfolio <laughs> that you're going to hate. Whether you're a 90-10, a 60-40, a 50-50, it doesn't really matter what your asset allocation is. Yeah, and I, 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 I add, add a, a corollary to that: that whatever portfolio you, is that you hate changes over time. What you love today, you're going to hate in in five years, ten years, or maybe even next year, and vice versa. So when when I was having a brief conversation with my wife this morning, Teresa, about who I was having on the show t- today, I said I'm having. Her name is Allison Schrager. My wife, sorry, did not know who you were. But I said she she wrote this really interesting book years ago that I really got hooked on, and it's called "An Economist Walks Into a Brothel." And she like looked at me, she's like, "What? What? Is, what is that about?" I said, "It's all about risk." That that was like my big takeaway. So, can you talk us through like how you came up with you know the book, the idea, and I guess as importantly the title because it's really super catchy. Yeah, it's a lot of pressure because you know you'll never top that. Um, So um, I'd spent years, um, I did a PhD in retirement economics, well, in economics, so I specialized in retirement and economics retirement. And then I spent years um, building financial products with 
a really brilliant financial economist like Martin and Fama and learned a lot about how to reapproach the retirement program, really more from a financial than macro perspective. And these had learned a lot about finance, I guess. And I, I'd always kept up this side career writing. And so it sort of reached a point where um, I felt like people didn't understand these basic principles of finance and investing. It's really not, I want to say it's not hard. It's hard and it's not hard, but there were some basic principles that could make people's lives a lot better if they understood them. And I, I don't think a lot of people who were writing do either didn't understand them or weren't in a position to communicate them. So I figured I'd sort of do for finance what Freakonomics did for Applied Micro, because I felt like that book was super important and that yeah. it really changed how people saw economics, that we weren't just stock pickers, that like economics is a story about incentives and trade-offs. And it really helped um, educate people because it was fun to read, illustrate what economists do. So I figured like finance needed that treatment. Um and so then I had this idea that I was going to do like Freakonomics, but for finance, uh, because I knew a lot of finance, I knew how to write, this would be easy. And then um, it dawned on me when I sat down to do the project, I like didn't have the research papers that Steve Levitt had to draw on. And, but I, I did have experience as a journalist, so I figured I would just report stories and I would meet people and, um, you know, share their stories. And the idea was that like, you know, as I said, I, I think risk is everywhere and in our personal lives and every market, financial markets are just one illustration, but financial markets are the clearest one because there's just the large volume of transactions and risk is explicitly being bought and sold, although it's implicitly being bought and sold in every other market. So I figured I'd show how every market deals with risk in a similar way. Um, but then I also realized as someone who'd only like written like opinions about the economy, I also had no idea how to report and I had no idea how to find these stories. And um, this is actually quite hard. And just talking to, uh, I was really like in the depths of not getting anywhere on my book proposal. Um, everyone said this is a great idea, but the execution was a problem. Uh, and so I was talking to a cousin of mine who's a, has a bit of an unsavory uh, side to him. And he was, <laughs> I was, he was a lawyer though. So I was like, you know, I'm really like trying to do this book and I need like a good story, a good risk story. I don't know how to find one, but you're a lawyer. Do you know anyone who's ever committed a crime? And he mentioned that his girlfriend uh, ran an illegal online brothel. Um, so, or like what was interesting about it is that she was, um, so most sex work, I wrote about the legal brothels in Nevada mostly, but most sex work in America happens online. Like there's websites where sex workers advertise and, uh, you know, you correspond to them, you set this up. I mean, it's very dangerous though. I mean, some, you know, guy who who wants sex is like sex workers i mean it's the whole thing sketchy i mean it's sketchy for the customer it's sketchy for the provider it's a very dangerous job so um there's all these things sex workers do to verify that this is an actual person that they're not gonna be violent um and on the customer side there's also uh ways of um screening so uh, it turns out his girlfriend um effectively did the screening which is actually quite arduous and difficult and kind of puts pressure on the relationship. So she effectively removed risk or like a lot of risks from this transaction. And for that reason, she got a third of the money. And I was like, oh, this is an interesting risk story because it's like you remove risk from this risky transaction and you get a 
third of the of the revenue, which like, you know, there we go. There's a risk premium. Um, and I'm always looking for the way risk is priced in markets. So I wrote this story for, I was at the time I was at Quartz um, and it did well, as you might expect. Um, and then I got an email from the Bunny Ranch. Uh, they had a, a rather sort of wonderful guy I stay in touch with, a aggressive um, PR guy, because uh, the legal brothels can't advertise. So they're always looking for media attention. Less so now because they don't really have an industry leader after Dennis Hoff died. But anyway... So they get in touch with me and he's like, well, if you're going to write about brothels, you should write about us. Why are you writing about this no name woman in New York who has like five people when we are like the biggest and best brothel or like the Goldman Sachs of brothels? He didn't use that. But that's what he said. There was a snobbery there that you only that you see. Because they had other... their own TV show, right? Yeah. I mean, they, they I mean, Dennis really like understood that marketing was important. And because you can't advertise, he took every opportunity. So I was like, I don't write about brothels. I write about retirement, but you know, hey, I'll, I'll, I'll get on the phone with you because this is interesting and why not? And he explained to me how it all worked. And he said something really interesting. He says, oh, he said a lot of interesting things, but one thing stuck out was, you know, we don't have set prices. You know, every transaction is individually negotiated because the women work as independent contractors. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. So you're telling me you have these like 18 year old women negotiating with like rich men in their sixties. Like, he's like, yeah, no one's ever asked about that before. You know, these women come here, they don't really know how to negotiate. They don't really know how to ask for their value. So we have a negotiation training program. What? And <laughs> Yeah, but she got money because like this is not just true in sex work. This is like a thing that like right. women problems asking for how much money they're worth. And when they do, that's perceived as aggressive or hostile. And like it's it's like it's a big deal. It's a big thing in every job. So I was like, and you think about sex work, like, I mean, I'm always nervous about asking for my money because you have to work with your people these people later. But like, I mean, they're gonna like have sex with these people. It's even more awkward. So I had this wonderful, wonderful editor at the time at Quartz, uh, Lauren Brown, and she was like, you got to go with a videographer. <laughs> and so I sort of just like, invited myself. I was like, I would like to come and view your negotiation training. <laughs> and I'm bringing a camera woman. Um, and they were like, cool. So um, off I went to Nevada and I said, I'm still struggling with this book proposal. And um Went through the negotiation training program, which was excellent, by the way. And who did um, they have running the negotiation pro training program? It's really like a one-on-one -on -one mentorship. So um, I'm I think sure. not, I think of negotiations, and I think of Chris Voss. Um, I've also had um, oh, I'm looking at my my uh, my bookshelf. Uh, Gary Nesner, who was an mm -hmm. FBI negotiator at the Branch Davidian compound in Waco. I have had him on. So I think of like negotiator. I think of like those people. So I'm like, who who does a brothel bring in to to help train their? Well, I mean, so Dennis, who owned the brothel, he's since died. Dennis Hoff, like the famous mm -hmm. brothel yeah. owner. Before he ran the brothel, he had a timeshare business, um, and he his it sounds horrible, but like, but it was sort of brilliant. Um, his realization when he decided to get into the brothel business that sex work was a lot like the timeshare business and he was really good at running the timeshare business like once you get in you can't ever get out <laughs> yeah. 
Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, that's actually a different story, but um, kind of. So, but also like training these people who sell people in timeshares and how to get convince people to spend more. I mean, these are things, skills he developed very well. So he went into the, and really looked at every one of these women as individual providers were effectively like the sort of people who sell timeshares. So he gave them a lot of training the same way they would train you in business if you decide to be someone who sold timeshares. So there were like weekly staff meetings with a lot of advice. Um, and when they join the brothel, they are assigned a mentor who is instructed to teach them in negotiation. I think there was, I think there was, a, don't quote me on this, a notebook with tips on how to negotiate. And they would do practice sessions all the time. Um, so uh, there was, in, um, so there was actually a lot of training around this. And I sat on the practice sessions, got the mentorship, saw the notebook. It was, um, so, uh, but it's really like all the people you were citing, all that conventional wisdom, like Dennis had studied that over the years from his timeshare business. So he knew all this stuff and yeah, like sort of distilled it down, made it more relevant to sex work. And there you go. So as I'm going through negotiation training, I'm also learning a lot about how sex is priced and how certain sex uh, transactions are priced and why one thing's more expensive than another. And I really started to see another risk story there about how the brothel sets prices and how it varies from prices you would see, say, in the illegal market, which is more risky because uh, brothel sex is a lot less risky or like really effectively no risk because, you know, they take all these steps to make for health, for uh, violence, all these things. Um, so, I mean, even if you're a customer, there's like no way anyone would ever find out. They even like take steps to preserve anonymity. So it really dawned on me there was another risk story there. And, you know, this is when I'm writing the proposal. So it all kind of came together. The, I, I mean, to be clear, the book is not about brothels. There's one chapter. Um, right. And I, I actually wanted to point that out because I think with with you telling the story, which I think is is a great story, that's why I, I really wanted you to share the story. But like in the book, like that's just one example. And and one of the notes that I had down that I wanted to talk about was that when you think of risk, like so far we've we've talked about brothel risk. Obviously, we've talked about market risk. But but when I'm working with with families, I'm really centered on other risks like career risk, relationship <laughs> risk, social <laughs> risk, like. There's no shortage of risk. And I think that's the thing is like when when like people come to a financial advisor such as myself, they think, okay, well, I'm just, I'm, they're just focused maybe on the portfolio management risk, if you will. But what I kind of really try to open people's eyes to is, well, your your biggest asset is not your house. It's not your portfolio. It's your career. So yeah. what are you doing with your career? And what are you doing with your relationships? Because you know, divorce is one of the most expensive things to go through, uh, especially if you have, you know, kids. Um, like most people know that I, I do. I have a set of not, well, now 13 year old triplets and an 11 year old plus one. So um, it's, it's, it's crazy. And then, you know, social risks, like with social media, it's like you get something posted out there and it's not necessarily like uh, endearing. It, so there's, there's no shortage of risk. And, and what I try to get people to think about is, you know, how do all of these risks come together to formulate not only your financial plan, but your lifestyle plan as well? Because it, this is the say, saying probably gets you know, really old that there's more 
personal and personal finance than financial planning and financial planning. Yeah, I think that people uh, who've never seen planners discount that value add, but it's super important. One, because I mean, you are teaching the, I said, I the original sin of financial planning, but the other big thing is what you point out is that for an individual investor who doesn't have like a trust fund, most of their wealth, particularly when they're young, is human capital. What we call in life cycle finance is like your future earnings, which is an asset like any other asset that needs to be managed. It needs to be um, uh, sort of, you need to take some risks sometimes, you need to pull back risks other times. And as I said, like even you say socially, I mean, there's also upsides to being well socialized. Like, you know, to networking. I'm terrible at networking, but like, apparently like, you know, being well socialized has a lot of um, financial upside too, in terms of like growing your human capital. So, I mean, I think that's when the, I mean, huge advantages of financial planners is they can sort of educate you on this more holistic way to think about your portfolio when particularly if you're young, like 95% of it is tied up in human capital. And also, I think also thinking about risks people don't see. I, I've always felt like one of the huge uh, values of financial planners is to also have hard conversations as you're approaching retirement. Things like, you know, one of you might be mentally impaired. How are we going to think about this? Like, I mean, there's no way I, AI is ever going to have that conversation with someone effectively. Right. Or I hope because that's a very dark world if you're having that conversation with a machine. Yes, very much so. Um how did you, how did you get so involved in risk? Like how did risk become like Alison Schrager's thing? <laughs> like, well, I mean, I started doing retirement economics, I guess when I was like 21, um, in college, it fascinated me as an economic problem. Like, cause it is like, I was always loved economics and, Economics's main question is, you know, the scarce allocation of resources. And over and so retirement is sort of that, you know, how do you you have a finite amount of resources you're gonna have over your lifetime? As I said, some sums it's wealth, sometimes it's your future earnings, but it's finite and you have to make it last. Um, and so that was the original thing that drew me in. Um, it's a very rich topic too, because obviously there's a lot of things that come up, social security and all of these things. But then as you get into that problem, you realize it's first and foremost, a risk problem. And not only that, like the original risk problem, I mean, humans from the dawn of time have been trying to figure out how to make resources last when they're faced with all these sources of uncertainty. I mean, now obviously these uncertainties involve markets and how long you're going to live and what's your health going to be. But I mean, even like, and you think hunter-gatherer days, um, this is like, how, how, how do we make, you know, our food last despite all these sort of sources of risk. So it really is the most like human and fundamental of all problems. So I think that's what drew me in um, because it's not like economists think about a lot of problems, but this is one, the most fundamental and two impacts everyone everywhere. Um, and in some ways is a very seductive problem, I think as well as an economist, because, you know, there's a lot of problems you can take on. Um, but like, you know, like development economics, that's hard. I don't know, think we'll ever figure out how to make um, poor countries rich, but like the solutions to retirement are actually not that hard. Uh, we know what they, we know what works. So uh, no, but we will never do that. So you can have a very nice career being like, do this and you're right. And no one will listen to you. Um, but really, like, yeah, <laughs> as, as you get 
as I got more serious about it, as I said, did a PhD and then uh, seven years of working with Merton, you know, you do realize it is first and foremost a risk problem and um, how you, and there are things you can do about that. You know, we're not hunter gatherers. We have a lot of, uh, you know, in a lot of development, economic development was driven by ways of managing risk of making resources last. So we, to come up with tools every day to make risk management easier or cheaper. So it, I think that's just exciting um, to me. And I guess that's uh, how I became a risk pro- person because, you know, once you do, you just see everything as a risk problem. Like, I don't know if you're involved in economics, Twitter. I hope not for your sake. Um, no, I never got on Twitter. I love economics, like- but like, I, I, I have this love hate relationship with like yesterday, like usually I, I, I don't talk about Fed speak on, on a podcast because most people are like, I don't know what the hell you're talking about, Paul. But yesterday was very interesting. I was I was driving in my car quite a bit. And so I was listening to Bloomberg and, and everything going on with the Fed decision yesterday. So I I keep a pulse on it, but that's that's as far as I go. You're a happier person than I for that reason. <laughs> um, so, but yeah, but there's a big debate on economics Twitter. And I even use economics Twitter lightly because I think of economics Twitter as a bunch of economics professors. So this is more like Nate Silver and some other guy, mm-hmm. um, but they're, they're in the world, in the world. So economics Twitter world. So they're having a huge debate because no one can figure out why if the economy is so good, like, you know, unemployment's down, inflation's coming down, Interest rates apparently are going to go up down. I don't know if that's true, but whatever. Uh, we're going back to everything we knew and loved about 2019, only even better, um, that everyone's so unhappy. Right. And so if you're thinking from a risk perspective, this is really obvious to me. And I keep writing this and it doesn't catch on. So I guess it's obvious to anyone else, which is think about it. We've had like 30 years of inflation being low and predictable, Right. Now inflation came back. It might come back again. Like it's in the ether. Like even if it's going down, maybe we're going back to 2019 and we'll forget this whole thing ever happened. Or maybe we're now in an environment where like every other time since we've had dollars where inflation is this pervasive thing that goes away and comes back, goes away, comes back. So think about it this way. When you have an uncertain inflation environment, it means you, um, your dollar, what that can buy is riskier because you just don't know what you can afford in a year the way you did in 2015. So think of if an asset is all else being equal, an asset that has riskier, a riskier flow is worth less than that same asset that has certain flow, right? Right. So if you don't know what your dollar can buy, even if it is, even if your inflation expected is two, but the variance around it is now, I don't know, two or one, and before it was zero, like you've just had a pay cut. Even if inflation is the same, just because you have uncertainty. And yeah. therefore, everyone just, just had a huge pay cut because they now live with inflation uncertainty. So even inflation goes back down, but it's variable for the rest of time, like they're going to be upset. People had a couple of years where they went to the store and eggs were $7. And now they're like, oh, I can't count on eggs being $3 anymore. Um, so it's just one big, like huge pay cut everyone's had. And I don't see why that's hard. Like, obviously, they feel like they're worse off because they are in risk adjusted terms. 
you actually started writing this about this on your Substack. I don't know how long ago. And it's something that I keep in my mind all the time when I'm making decisions or having conversations with with families because usually like my my annual review season is from September through the middle of, of November. And you know, I, I've got I've worked with about 60 families currently. And so small sample size, but enough where I, you know the, the thing I love about about my firm Tama is like I have clients across the entire spectrum from young kids to you know people that are are retired it's 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 a great sample size but that's the one thing that that i've really picked up on is the negative sentiment that people have like they feel like it's really harder to get ahead these days because yes the rate of inflation the cost of goods has been slowing down but when you go back and look at your your, your example of eggs well Eggs used to be three dollars, and now they're you know seven dollars, and they're not increasing as much, but it's still a lot more than I was paying you know three years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or you don't know if seven dollar eggs are going to come back, right? So it's I, like you, you so fa- so your your future income, even if it's the same salary, it's just risky. It's a riskier stream, and because I mean, economists always think of it's not the money; it's what you can buy with it, right? You can buy with it is more uncertain. It's worth less. It just is. Yeah, I was um just rereading um oh gosh my, the book's like over there on the other side of the room um uh I can't believe I'm blinking on his name but the the point is is that he was reinforcing the point that it's it's all about purchasing power and when yeah. when designing portfolios the way that I do I always keep that in mind because. You know, even I think there's this this idea that okay, well, once somebody hits retirement, then you got to go like ultra conservative, and that and and I push back on that because no, if you have this uncertainty around inflation, you know, buying you know a a bond that's you know now obviously rates rates are high now, but rates were close to zero for you know a, a long period of time, and so. With, with that, it's like you you can't you know just shift your portfolio into conservative fixed income when it's not going to keep up with inflation because every year you're going to lose. Mm-hmm. Although I am enjoying the five percent I'm getting on the money market fund. Oh I hope my that, god! Yeah, I hope that doesn't go away. I hope we keep that. <laughs> yeah, that would hopefully the, uh, but I don't. I hope so too. But when I was when I was listening to Bloomberg, Tom Keen was on. I was like, "Man, with with what Powell did yesterday, I'm like those those rates are come coming down pretty quick." Are they? I mean, like I feel like I'm invested in because I've made so many calls that rates aren't going back down, or maybe they'll go down, but not all the way down. But I don't know. Like everyone I know seems like completely on board with this idea. Like this was all just a, an aberration, and we're going back to 2019 world. Yeah, and I'm I'm with you because like. Readers, full disclosure, um, Allison has a uh, Substack read, which we'll link to um, in the show notes, um, it, which I, I don't miss every week. Like that's one newsletter I make sure I read every week, Allison, uh, is yours. And I really, again, like this idea that, you know, the, you know, inflation may be coming down now, but it could always pop back up. And I, I think that's th- that that uncertainty, that risk, like everybody's just expecting it to just 
go back the way it used to, what happens if it doesn't? Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I granted I've always been wrong on this, but like every economist I speak to is like, just doesn't see us going back to that world or effectively that world was never sustainable. Right. And, you know, I mean, certainly just like a zero rate world and, uh, or a zero inflation world. And like the pandemic just accelerated these long running trends that spoke to sort of a more volatile, higher inflation environment, higher interest rate environment. And, you know, maybe, maybe, especially if we have a recession, we will go back down to those things like low rate, low inflation, but they'll eventually go back up just because structurally, how can they not? But you never know. I mean, I mean, as I said, like, I mean, understanding risk is like saying like, this is, this is what I'm concerned about. But I ultimately don't know the future. I'm just preparing for everything. Right. And I think the one thing that I try to keep in mind is with, with people wanting like lower rates or, or rate cuts, like let's face it at, at six, 7%, well, 7% mortgage rates, you know, it's really <laughs> killed the, the housing industry. But if the way I see it is if the fed starts cutting rates, Something bad has happened in the economy or growth is like really slowing, which is, which is, you know, not great. So, you know, everybody like hoping and and wanting these rate cuts. I'm like, well, wait a minute. Does that really make sense? Like, cause like in my mind, I'm like something had, had to go wrong. And that's the thing is trying to predict what that thing going wrong is, is impossible. It's just something will break. Yeah, I think they're hoping, I think they're saying, and like the idea that we have this precision is absurd, that like rights right now are, are restrictive. So let's just go to neutral, but we don't have to like put the foot on our ga- on the gas. But I mean, I said, like we have so much uncertainty. I mean, who knows? I think the dot plots are consistently been wrong. So now that they're now predicting three, what, three rate cuts next year, um, you know, I just, who, I said, we, we, we just don't know. And, um, I said, granted, I've been expecting inflation and higher rates for like 15 years. So I've been proven wrong before. So take it for what it will. But as I said, it's just, you just look at the structure of it. And I just don't see how eventually these things don't come back. So to, to bring, cause I know I only have you for a little bit longer, um, to bring it back to, to risk, you know, what do you think people miss most when dealing with their own personal risk um you mean like in their life or in their finances i'd say let's go with life because that's what i deal with a lot is life life planning not necessarily like financial planning i mean I do I both, think but plan like the new book explores why i feel like most people probably aren't taking enough risk and probably in their careers in their fine maybe in their finances i don't and that's harder to uh, sort of say especially for people who who have planners they probably are well invested but um certainly i think also socially i think we're seeing just so much more creep up of risk aversion but we're also seeing it show up economically i mean everyone there's this weird myth going around and i mean partially it was informed by faulty data faulty data i myself have used so um no shame in that that you know, people are living with this unprecedented economic risk and it is just not true. I mean, wage variability has been declining for years, but you know what? So has wages. And it's sort of, as I said, it makes sense, right? You know, uh, there, if, if you're in a less volatile portfolio, you have less growth. 
I mean, so people are taking less risk in their jobs, so they have less wage variability, but they also have less wage growth. So I think people are largely now feeling like sort of like they didn't really give it their shot or meet their potential because they didn't really feel, and some of it, it's not their fault. I'm not saying everyone's neurotic. I think there are really truly structural things that make it a lot harder to take risk than before, but it is keeping people from being able to take the risks that they should and should feel empowered to take. And I think they miss out on a lot of upside, both probably personally and financially for that reason. Do you, do you, do you unpack that a little bit in the new book with why People oh, yeah. have a little bit. Can you give us any like teasers? <laughs> well, I think some of it is, um, I think we've had like a lot of change and we confuse change with risk a lot. Um, so I think when you have a lot of change, you naturally do pull back. I think two things really impact your relationship with risk, both wealth and technology. Because you think these are the two things you use to manage risk. If you have more wealth, you can pay to make risk go away. And if you have more technology, it's a great tool to manage risk. So I think these things have changed a lot. So they've sort of distorted our view with risk. Also, as people get richer, there's evidence they become allegedly more risk averse. Although I find that relationship isn't clear. We got a lot wealth. We got a lot wealthier during the early stages of the industrial revolution. Yet we also, be, it was actually a really sort of, in some ways, a golden era for risk taking was, I would say the 19th and early 20th century. Um, and we were getting rich like crazy. So I don't know if that's always true, but um so I think these have distorted things. I think there are also legitimately structural things. It's really easy for me to say to someone with, you know, three kids and a steady job that, hey, man, you should try like taking going out on your own when like he's really dependent on health insurance from that job. You know, and, and they said that's a structural thing we've de we've designed our economy around that makes it really hard to take risks. So um I, I think there's policies and structure and I think culture. And as I said, I think just a general confusion from all the sort of change that's been happening. So I, I want to get to my, the closing question that I ask all of my guests, which is what is the best thing about being a parent? But I, I forgot to ask you before we hit record. I don't think you have kids, do you? No. <laughs> so I'm going to, so when I, when I, when I, when I have this, um, I usually punt to um, my my uh, my colleague Patrick O'Shaughnessy's closing question on on his podcast, which I'm sure you're familiar with. Is what is the kindest thing that anyone has done for you? You know, that, that's hard to say. So many people do such kind things for me all the time. Uh, uh, hmm. I can't think of one. I mean, I guess I, I'd have to say things my parents have done, um, which is raise me. Uh, that was very selfless of them. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I, I, I can really empathize with that question, trying to raise uh, a set of triplets plus one my, myself. Um, do we, do we have a, do you have a, a release on the, on the new book? Like when it's coming out? Anything? I think January 2025. Okay. So we've got another year before we see it. Yeah, I mean, it, it's actually written, but, uh, you know, with um, the election and stuff, we've pushed it beyond that, which is in itself a risk. You know, it's it's a, it's a book that's like arguing that the world has never been less risky and like writing that a year in advance is or two years in advance is in itself a big risk because, I mean, we might have a recession then. We don't know what's going to happen with the election, but I'm just like saying now, yeah, the world's great. <laughs> 
Well, so I'll I'll put a link uh, to your book. Um, uh, An economist walks into a brothel. It's it's a great read, everyone. And we we only touched on one story in that book, and and Allison lays out an, you know a plethora of great stories um, in there that revolve around risk that you'll find to be very personal for yourself. Allison, where's the best people for where's the best place for people to find you at? Um, well, I mean, you can sign up for my Substack, which is sort of a digest of my writing. Um, but I also, if you subscribe to Bloomberg, write for Bloomberg Opinion once a week too. All right. Well, we make. Sh- I will make sure that we put a link into uh, for your Substack and your book. And again, I can't thank you enough for for taking the time to have a conversation with us on the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast. All right. Well, anytime. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thanks, Allison. Who knew? how much we had in common with brothels. Uh, life is, this is the thing I love about Allison's work and, and economists and behavioral scientists alike is how they can take something as complex and as interesting or as deep as uh, brothels and tying them into the risk that we endure in everything in, in everyday life. There's a couple of points I'd, I'd like them to, to talk about as well as I wrap up this conversation with Allison is that we have to have this consideration of uncertainty and purchasing power when it comes to our financial future and financial planning. I think this is one of the things that I've really started to hone in on these last couple of years as we had nearly 20 years of no inflation at all, you know, subdued risk, if you will. Um, but now... This is very real. While inflation is coming down, it's still relatively high. Like the prices that we paid a few years ago were probably not going back there. But the other point I think that's worth mentioning that we touched on is that this understanding why financial planning must transcend beyond portfolio performance and include not only risk management, but lifestyle management and planning as well. And again, I think this is a, a common theme I talk about all the time about your financial life and your personal life intersect together. You cannot have one without the other. And I think this conversation with Allison really puts that into perspective. If you've enjoyed this conversation, could you do me a favor? Do you know anyone else who would enjoy these types of conversations? where we talk about the intersections of our emotional and financial lives? Because if you do, it's actually going to help both of us. Could you share this conversation with someone? They will think you're great because you just gave them this terrific podcast and it helps me grow my audience. Or you can tell them to go to TamaCapital.com. Thank you so much and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast. Please visit TamaCapital.com to subscribe to this podcast or to connect with certified financial planner and registered investment advisor, Paul Fenner of Tama Capital. And please join us again next time on the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast. Podcast.